Everyone, welcome back to the to America Mao and the Metaverse. I'm Paul Craig, and I'm here with my co-host Paul Schulte, who is a man of determination and action, a man of profound thought and feeling, a man who inherited a legacy but dares to innovate, a man who has forward-looking vision and is committed to tireless work. This paragon of leadership even inspects pigsties and toilets to obtain first-hand information of people's livelihoods. Paul, I would love to say that is about the story of your life, but apparently that's what the People's Daily thinks of Xi Jinping as he goes into closed-door meetings at the uh, with his Politburo. So, mate, how are you? Good, good, good. So before we dive in a little bit of uh, in a little bit of all things Xi Jinping and consolidating power and the like, let's talk a little bit more about about Meta. This is our sort of our, our second formal one, our third informal version of the podcast. But all three have had had a bit of a theme so far, and that's and that's Meta bashing or bashing of Facebook in general. I don't know when I'm going to get over the uh, the mental hump of starting to uh, call it Meta. But you're back from Lisbon. You spent more time at the Lisbon Web Summit in Barcelona. Talk a little bit about the continuation of this meta bashing, as we want to, call, as I want to call it. Where are, where do we stand with Facebook right now? Well, it's interesting because I did another big conference through my affiliation with Zhang University, and this was with some people at the Hong Kong University and the HKMA, as well as uh, some people at Cambridge and uh, the Bank of England. And this was last Thursday, or last Friday, rather. And it was interesting because the delegation from Cambridge and the Bank of England were quite on board. They were very much saying, well, this whole thing with Meta and the introduction of a set of rails on Meta for financial activity, you know, involving crypto and the potentiality for connecting that to the, to the Federal Reserve and I was like, wow, that's really brave because that's not what I'm hearing, you know. And then, of course, I talked with David Lee, who's the co-author with two of my books, and he wrote the foreword of my book, Money Metaverse, and he's a big a big thinker and, and has the eye ear of the prime minister in, in Singapore. And, and what he told me on Friday, and David's not a fan of, David's not a fan of Facebook at all, but he said that you know, him and a group of his colleagues dived into to Meta last late last week, and they were utterly blown away by how good it was. And these guys are crypto freaks. These guys are like the, David was. David and all his colleagues are crypto from 2010, right? So, so they live and breathe that stuff. They said that anything that Microsoft has, Google has, nothing comes close to what they saw in Meta last week. So. I need to throw that out there and tell you that people who live and breathe that world of crypto and digitization are blown away by the capacity of the meta product. So I just right. want to so throw that out there. Do me a favor. Walk, walk us through the meta product, right? So obviously it's had its iteration starting with Libra and the like back in the day. But walk us through walk us through the meta product. I'm assuming it's a stable it's a stable coin. It's a stable coin. But walk well, us through Walk us through the whole much, much, much bigger than right. It, it, it's it's got it, it's got elements of, and, and that's that's of course the, the, the what the money the, my, the money metaverse is all about. There are elements of digitizing and creating monetary value in a purely digitized way, using crypto in the pure meta universe, pure digital, a pure avatar universe of brands, of sports, of clothes, of entertainment, of travel, of thought, of education, 
of finance and insurance, right? But but finance and insurance is 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 a a small part of that universe. And of course, what what we're looking at, Paul, is that great movie coming from the the international bestseller that was translated, I believe, into 21 languages. You know, Ready Player One. And I think this thing that Meta has created is so far, apparently, the closest thing that we have to Ready Player One that we've ever seen. And of course, Ready Player One was published in 2011, 10 years ago. And I've seen the movie three times. and Every time it blows you away because it just shows you the imagination of this guy that would have written this book, you know, starting in 2009, you know, and here we are now in 2022 coming into 2022 and, and Facebook has really with AR and VR has really created something that is according to my, I have not seen it according to, to my colleagues at Singapore is, is truly impressive. So I just want to throw that out there that this is already not just in the works, it's already out there. And I was quite surprised by my, fellow speakers at this uh, all-day conference on CBDC that they were so willing and able to see Facebook's platform being used as a, um, not just a single uh, currency product, but as a multi-currency product as well. Hmm. There there was discussion of that. And it's not just, it's not a basket, but it's a multi-currency product. Now, I have to tell you, Paul, when I wrote that book, AI and Quantum Computing, for banking and finance, I was invited by the CFA Society to go to talk to CFA societies in, in like eight cities in Asia, from Seoul all the way down to Jakarta, India, Dhaka, uh, even Sri Lanka, and Bangkok and Manila and Singapore and Hong Kong, and also in China. And, and I got to tell you, that was exactly the time that, that when it was called DM was being launched. I'm sorry, it was Libra was being launched. Boy, I can tell you, every one of them was like, ha ha, fat chance Facebook's ever going to launch anything in this country. And I was talking to some people who were very senior level people from either the banking regulatory agency or the securities agencies. And so I got to tell you that from my face-to-face meetings, especially in Korea, where they were like, they were just laughing at the idea that they thought Facebook could come into Korea and have their own, you know, sort of currency product, forget it. And if anything, I think in the last two, two and a half years, that sort of negativity about Facebook, I think, is probably accelerated, given what happened with the revelations about the U.S. election, the U.K. election, Brexit, the investigations in Parliament, the investigations in Congress, and what has happened in many other countries uh, in Africa and South America. Hmm. So, okay, so I want to look at this from a a couple of angles, right? So are we underestimating Facebook? Right, because there's a natural assumption. Look, it's it's very everyone from the Lisbon Web Summit to podcasters like Scott Galloway and all this sort of stuff. The easy thing to do is to shit can Facebook, right, and to to call you know to sit there and call Mark Mark Zuckerberg a sociopath and all this sort of stuff. It's really easy to do, right? Are we underestimating them, or is too much damage to the reputation done for even if it is the best product out there? that they just won't be allowed to expand because of who they are? I was thinking about that today. That's a really good question. I'll give you some examples. Uh, remember when Matt Taibbi in the back of Rolling Stone called Goldman Sachs the, the vampire squid. squid? Yeah, yeah. And everyone's like, oh, oh boy, now everyone, uh, Goldman Sachs, been, been, the curtains have been rolled back and 
Goldman Sachs full of evil people, and now they're going to get their comeuppance. Nothing happened, right? When I was at CS First Boston, they kept making bumble after bumble after bumble with Russian debt, you know, implosion and, and all kinds of terrible deals. Credit Suisse is still around. And so I can think, I can, you know, DuPont is still around. 3M is still around. The New, England, the New England Patriots is still around, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So the California Angels are still there, my home team, and they, they just never go away. I was thinking about that a lot today. And I think that when I heard a lot of these people at one of the top think tanks in Cambridge at the Bank of England just confidently saying, we don't have any problem with Facebook being used as a, um, a platform, I was like, wow, this is really a, a new data point for me. And so I, I think that the revelations are also that if you think it's bad in the U.S., just go to some of these other you know, emerging market countries and frontier countries, and it's a whole lot worse. And so Facebook was great for the people who won elections. People in Trump land are very thankful to Facebook. People who are Brexiteers are very thankful to how they help and Cambridge Analytica help. Yep. Right. So so among the right and among people in the power elite of the sort of the whatever you want to call them, the, the libertarian sort of right pro markets group, they're happy as clams with Facebook. Yeah, and there's, and there's look, let's let's be honest. The share the Facebook share price, if that is if your share price is an indication of public opinion, which we can mail, we can argue the merits of that statement. But the world doesn't care. The investing world doesn't care, right? It still is one of two platforms that every advertiser on the planet has to use, period, full stop, end of story. The, the, the nicer, friendlier versions of Facebook, if, if they are out there, they don't work from an advertising perspective, right? So, you know, but again, I don't know if there's an organic link between dominance in terms of social media platforms and, and the adoption of a of a coin, of a stable coin to rival the local currency of choice. Yeah, I mean, the, the whistleblower caused uh, whatever, $30, $40 of damage to Facebook, but that was a you know, $100 stock three years ago, and now it's uh, whatever, three three thirty. So that whistleblower caused cost Facebook 10%. So you're right. Right. I, I, and I, I don't see, to me, it doesn't look like Facebook's, you know, stock is, is you know, ready to fall off the edge of the earth. And so I, I am going to say that it's going to be very hard to stop it. And the reviews on Meta are from people who I, I guarantee you are not fans of Facebook were stellar. So I got to say that you might be right. It's a look at mate, look, put it this way. This is this is the sort of reason you and I do these have these conversations, because there's no one having no one in our traditional public market world is having that conversation that maybe this is actually a win that Facebook has something of a winning strategy in regards to in regards to Meta. No one's having that conversation. Right? Now, we don't want, and again, it goes back to a theme which I talk about a lot. Just because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not going to be successful. Right, and and mate, just this is a very good place to segue on that is is obviously Xi Jinping, right? And no, it's funny. I was writing pieces on the weekend talking about investing from an ideological standpoint and how that always is a bit of a hiding to nothing, because you know, as as the Chinese, for those of you who aren't aware, the Chinese are sort of in these secret party talks right now with the, 
with the Politburo. And one of the things that's coming out of the Politburo, this, this meeting is, is going to be a not a rewriting per se, or re, it is a restating of the last hundred years of the of the Chinese Communist Party. The last time this was done was under Deng Xiaoping when they basically had to rule draw a line between between Mao, the cultural, the cultural revolution, and China effect, effectively embracing you know, its own version of its own version of capitalism. But look, I mean, they're, they're rewriting it again, which again is emphasizing the the elevated status of Xi Jinping in terms of up there with, with Mao and, and Deng Xiaoping. Obviously, the difference is that that Deng didn't get a third term, where Xi Jinping has got that and probably and probably more. Paul, I think you you alerted me to a, an interesting an interesting photograph actually over the last couple of days, which looked like very much like a replica of an American warship in the middle of the Chinese desert. Can you talk talk a little bit about sort of military Chinese sort of the Chinese military buildup and and the like, and how that is a reflection of Xi Jinping's view of the world? Yeah, so I talked to a couple of uh, my sources at like military intelligence in the UK and in the US and Washington and, and, and in Singapore. And what, what, what all of them said was actually the exact same thing. It's like, well, why wouldn't they do that? That's what, that's what prepared navies do. They, they learn how to target and bomb the things that they're supposed to bomb in the event of war. So, of course, they're doing that. Now, I got some good insight. Why are they doing this in the desert? There's two reasons why they're doing it in the desert. The first one is to hide the kind of weapons that they're using so they don't get seen in where they can be closely monitored on on the sea where there's all kinds of uh, clandestine ways to look at what's going on, including submarines, obviously. But here is the rub, for instance. One of my friends in Australian intelligence, he said, what the hell do you think the outback is for Australia? You could blow a lot of shit up in Australia in the outback and nobody knows about it, which they did. They were blowing up atomic bombs for a decade. And I mean, no the, US, the, US, the U.S. were doing nuclear tests in a place called Woomera for, you know, for yeah. five years, yeah. five years in the 50s. Yeah. That's right. So, 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 so that's, the fir- that's the first reason uh, was because they could use perhaps hypersonic missile technology to see what kind of damage you could do to an aircraft carrier in the middle of the desert. Secondly, and more important, you want to be doing this where you don't have the potential for accidentally causing a conflict by sending out the wrong signals, right? So you don't want to be doing this in the South China Sea, for God's sakes, where there's all kinds of ships of, of, of five different navies running, running around the South China Sea. So that's what's going on. And, and specifically, I was talking to someone this afternoon who's a military analyst in New York from a West Point graduate. And, and his idea was basically, look, it's become very clear that not only is, is China ahead in hypersonic technology, but everybody knows that the U.S. probably does, China certainly does, have the capability of, of, of attaching nuclear weapons to hypersonic missiles, which makes any aircraft carrier that costs $11 billion zapped in five minutes because these things travel at 3,500 miles an hour. They, they travel at Mach 5 or Mach 6. And so if, even if you don't necessarily have a nuclear-tipped hypersonic missile, probably a, a very high-powered hypersonic missile could destroy an aircraft carrier. And so this is one of those things where it's becoming clear in a lot of the discussions I've been having in the last month that whether it's with zero-hour bots on infrastructure or military technology or naval technology, each side can obliterate the other. 
And so, like I said, I've been saying this for a year. We are back in math. And, and, and mutually assured destruction is twofold. It's hypersonic technology that sort of is, is a new form of the tactical nuclear weapon scare that we had in, in the 80s when I was working at the National Security Council. Korea very likely had tactical nuclear weapons, right? West Germany did, the UK did, Israel did, does, right? That's Several South, other Africa, South Africa did, right? South Africa, very likely. I was going to say South Africa, very likely. And so now we have the hypersonic uh, missile issue, and also we have the, the zero-hour bots that both sides can take down electricity grids, airports, light systems for uh, traffic and, and, and you know, water systems, and, and God knows what. We don't even know oil and gas pipeline networks, right? And so, so, so this is where we're in a new Cold War. It's mutually assured destruction through the, the electronic destruction of infrastructure or with hypersonic missile technology. And that's the point that I want to make to everybody. The point is, how many wars did the U.S. and Soviet Union have with each other? Zero. They had about 50 proxy wars, right? And that's exactly what's happening right now in Afghanistan. China is a proxy state representing, supporting Pakistan. The U.S. and India are on the other side. Russia's on one side. Taliban and Turkey, ISIS, ISIS and Turkey are on another side. That's exactly what happened in the 80s and 90s, Paul. Look at Mozambique. Everyone's at each other's throats in Mozambique. China, France, Russia, whatever. Eric Prince and his cronies are in there, right? right? And so all we need is, a, is, a, is another conflict in, the, in Central America, and we'll have a trifecta of exactly what happened during the Cold War. But Paul, in the greater scheme of things, though, doesn't obviously obviously mutually assured destruction created this dysfunctional equilibrium where things were remarkably stable, right? You had you had conflicts, and obviously the Vietnam War and that that escalated. And I think there's a there's a long way to extrapolate before we get to to there. But in the sort of the near term, are you a believer? And again, you've alluded to. I think I know the answer to this question, but uh, you've alluded to the fact that the Soviets and the Soviets and the, the Americans didn't conflict directly outside of the near the near conflict in, in Cuba. Doesn't that ensure us a very stable world in the great in the? I, I, well, no, I, I, I've been thinking that same thing. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I, I think I think every, each side knows. But but don't remember, we came close, very, very close to a nuclear war in 1962 in the, in the, in the Soviet, in, in Soviet buildup of the missiles in Cuba. And we also came very close in 1983 in Reagan's second year, third year of, of, of his presidency. And probably a couple of small, close calls, but generally speaking, there was a, an equilibrium. We are lining up for the equilibrium right now. This is what I believe the world is doing right now. We have a non-aligned movement. We have a China pack. We have a China block and we have a, a West block. And right now it is America, the UK, Canada is very iffy. Germany is not on side. Probably France is pissed off, but certainly we have America, Britain, Japan, Korea, Australia, and India. In, in, in India, the quad, the quad is probably the best way to describe that. Right? Quad. quad with the UK. And then we have Russia, China, Pakistan, and a couple of other minor guys, four African countries, just pick, and Venezuela, 
and Brazil is, is clearly in the U.S. camp. But you know, the, 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 the countries are lining up exactly as they did. This is so tedious. This is so unimaginative because it's a repeat of the 80s. I swear. It's exactly what I'm looking well, at. But the, not, the, not, the, non-aligned, the non-aligned countries are going to be, are going to be met many more of them, right? Because, you know, I don't see, I think the Trump era did enough damage structurally to... Agree. You know, I agree. The NATO agreements to the like. And you've got a lot of countries, smaller countries, that now have the ability to flex, to, to be to be on their own. Like, you know, a country like Chile, for example, with you know some of the world's largest copper reserves, Chile has the chance to become the Norway, the Norway of South America, if 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 copper demand goes the way we think it will in regards to the energy transition. There's a lot of smaller countries in Africa that have the ability to be to stand on their own two feet. And certainly throughout yeah, Asia. Don't forget what happened in 1971 when Chile tried to exert its autonomy with Allende and he tried to nationalize the copper reserves. He was overthrown and killed. And uh, Pinochet took his place. That was the US puppet. There's going to be a lot of that gloves off stuff going on in the world. Trust me. And, and it's happening right now. I mean, you look at Sudan, you look at Sudan's coup last week, and you look who was behind it. It's very interesting what's going on. That's that's one of those signs where you'd like to have people on your side uh, who are now in the government who could be a military colonel who can do your bidding. And I think that's exactly what happened in Sudan. And, and, uh, and, and you and I, you and I can uh, talk about on another podcast, talk a little bit about the influence of, of commodity prices around the climate transition and the and sort of the, strate- the need for strategic reserves that, that China obviously has many of, but potentially we need a European strategic reserve in copper and lithium and the like, and maybe the same in the US, and what that means for sort of geopolitical alliances. But uh, mate, what are you, you're in Barcelona. What are you up to for the next week and what should we, we be looking out for? Well, I just published a piece on, on PropTech. And, you know, one of the things that, that you and I have been, been like doing this for 180 years, and one of the things that there's always a bit of a, sort of a start parting of the ways between you know, astonishing technologies that come along every 10 years or so, which is when we're in one of those periods right now, and the, the beauty of it and, and the, the astounding imagination that's behind it and, and the potentiality for it. And then you get all of these crap IPOs who say that they are of this technology in order to hype their stock price. And then it turns out when you actually go into the the guts of the company, it's like, oh, we're Bobby Bubblegum and Bobby Pins and everything's outsourced and we have five people and we really don't know what we're doing, but this guy's from Goldman Sachs and this lady is really famous. And and, and we have a lot of that in prop tech. And so I'm, I'm a little discouraged about something that is so immensely, potentially so immensely powerful with the potential for smart cities and smart homes and the digitization of, 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 of collateralized the property assets, Paul, and how powerful that is. And yet what we've come across is Link Logis, which is embroiled in the Evergrande catastrophe. And Link Logis has gone down. We have a set, we had a sell on that at the IPO. It was just way too expensive. That's gone down 60%. Right? And when did they, when, when did they For, go public? It went public almost six months ago. March, April. So uh, that's another one, right? And then the other one, Compass, is down about 30 or 40 percent. And another one that was Zillow, Zillow, is probably another, Zillow is probably another good example of that, isn't it? Well, I think, I think that's right. I think Zillow is in the background here causing a lot of the damage. 
But I think these other guys are, their colors would have been shown anyway, anyway. And then, of course, Bukalapa was this second tier prop tech company that really didn't have any tech, right? But, but a lot of promise. And, and that's been creamed. That's down about 35% from the IPO. That was around uh, four months ago. So you've had a lot of damage out there on some darlings in Hong Kong, Indonesia, in, in the U.S., where, and, and, and of course, Zillow being uh, another one. Zillow was down 80% from its high, right? I mean, it's down like 30%, 40% you know, in the last couple of months, but it's down 80% from its high. Its high was, I think, $200. And so, so PropTech is being shown to, and you know, as I sent you that research several months ago, we were, I, I wrote a book on it. And then when we did the companies, it was like, there's no there there. There just isn't much here, and it's all very expensive. And so that's what we've been working on for the last few weeks. So we're pretty negative on that. And plus, Paul, a lot of these companies, we're looking, we have our eyes on it like an eagle on all of these technicals, looking at the RSI, looking at any sort of indicators on uh, moving averages, looking at MACD, looking at, at, at short interest, looking at volume. Man, there is just nothing there that tells us that there's been a capitulation on a lot of this, this prop tech stocks that a lot of people jumped into. So watch that space. More to go. Mate, great to chat to you. Let's do this again next week. Uh, we're going to be doing America Mao in the metaverse for the foreseeable future. If you've got questions, shoot them through. Paul, we'll catch up next week. Okay. Take care, my friend. Cheers, mate. Bye for now. Bye.